Let's stand together. The reading of God's word, John chapter 11, we'll take it up at verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, your word is filled with mighty truths, glorious heights. We are carried there as we hear the word, Father. We are also carried into the depths even of our own soul as the word comes as light and probes our inner being. Father, as you have appointed the preaching of the word, we ask that which you have appointed as we seek to be obedient in it, both in the preaching and the hearing of the word, that your spirit would attend both that Christ would be magnified, that we would be edified, the sinners would be convicted, and the saints encouraged that we may be built up to the glory of the Lord who saved us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Dying and death are realities in this world. Just heard of Hezekiah who was ill unto death and did greatly lament over that reality. Let us remember that dying and death are not natural. They're not normal. God did not make mankind that he might die. God created man in his own image, male and female. He created them to live forever. His new creatures to live for his glory. But Adam rebelled and sinned. We all sinned and fell with him in that first transgression. And ever since, death has been an event common to all humanity throughout to the vastness of the expanse of this world, even to the corners where few have gone. It is a reality. John 11 is opened with a shadow of death spreading across the scene. Lazarus is very ill. Jesus was sent for. Jesus delayed intentionally, on purpose, doing the will of the Father. And Lazarus died. Now, most of us are familiar with this story. We know where it's headed. We hear this of the death and, and the lament and the sorrow, even as it is this chapter, but we know what's next. We think of Lazarus sick and dying, but we know that Jesus will come and raise him from the dead. We know the rest of the story. But like Job, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, they did not know what would happen. Like Job, God had a plan and a purpose. Martha and Mary, like us, know what is in Job chapter 1 and 2. They don't know what's in chapter 1 and 2 of their own story. 
They can read that historical book. And even as it instructs us that we are to recognize that God is sovereign and he is the creator and he does not owe man an answer, though he will answer man at times, he does not always answer the questions we come with. It is God's story that unfolded in the life of Job and it is God's story that is unfolding in the life there in Bethany of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. God glorified his name in all that Job experienced John 11 is the story, God's story, with Jesus' name written upon it. Martha and Mary and Lazarus are in the story, but it is about Jesus first and foremost. This little family in Bethany are God's chosen characters in what unfolds. We should understand when there's great calamity in our lives and things that are uncertain, God has not forsaken us. God does not despise us. He often chooses his choicest vessels to endure the greatest suffering. Because of his love for us, he knows what is best for us and indeed how to glorify his name. God knows where the story is going. God knows how will it will turn out because God wrote the story. He appointed these events. Things are not out of control. They are actually as he has decreed them. We need to remember that in our day. We can watch the headlines. We can be despairing. But remember this. God is still writing the story. It's God's story. It's for his glory. It's that Christ would be exalted. It's that his will would be accomplished in all the nations of the earth. God is at work. God knows how it will turn out. Because he has decreed it. He is God. And we are not. This is so true for our lives. Our individual lives as well. We live our lives but. We're not at the center of the story of our lives. Now, it's pretty counterculture, isn't it? You know, we have a generation, a couple generations, even as some of us older ones, we can remember you know, there's a certain element in our lives that you know, is kind of a fixation on us as children. We can have what we want, do what we want. That's certainly become the spirit of the day. But indeed, we live lives where we're not at the center of the story we live. We are characters in what God is doing day by day across the span of this earth, to display his own glory. He reveals his son as the savior of sinners and the only one by which we must be saved. For there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved but the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what's central in the passage before us and is still true today. Men must be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality of death and dying reminds us we need salvation. Things are not as they should be. Sin has entered the world, and with it, death, even as God told Adam it would be so. But let us remember, God has sent his only begotten son into the world to save sinners. As we live our lives out, we should understand we, too, have a chapter 1 and 2, like Job did. We don't know what's in it, but God has written it. When we think of that one, God there has explained the larger story. We may never get to read chapter 1 and 2 of our own lives. But when we get to heaven, when we get to glory, we will no longer be walking by faith. We'll be walking by sight. Why? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in him shall never perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus brings us home to heaven. He brings us there in life. And because of what Christ has accomplished, he has removed the sting of death. We use four main headings. The sting of death, Martha's faith, Jesus' revelation, and Martha's confession. We begin with the sting of death, taking this from verses 17 
through 19. Jesus is nearing the end of his journey from the, the River Jordan, where he retired after the opposition grew hot against him in Jerusalem. No doubt he has encountered others on his way into the city. The city is a throng of people that have come out. There are mourners. And as he's made his way in, and just naturally in conversation, he would have made inquiries and he would learn that Lazarus has died. Now, Lazarus, I mean, Jesus knew that he was dead. You know, Jesus is told that he's been dead in the tomb for four days. Had the spirit revealed to them? We don't know. We need to understand that Jesus learned information in a variety of ways as man, as the son of man. He came to understand things sometimes in the same way we do. But as the son of man, full of the Holy Spirit, he had the revelation of God to him by the spirit of God as well. But as he comes in, he learns that, quote, he had already been in the tomb four days. John records this to prepare us as readers to understand that what Jesus was soon going to do was never been accomplished before. It was unheard of that a man dead four days would be raised from the dead. Well, we understand from that because we think of where Jesus was at, the messenger set. We did this last week. That's a day. Jesus delays two more days, and then he comes. There's another day. What we understand then is Lazarus died shortly after the messenger was dispatched from Mary and Martha. They sent the messenger to go to Jesus to bid him come, but he's died. And because of the climate, the location where they were at, he was buried later that same day. The body would have been bathed and anointed with oil and wrapped up with cloths and spices all in an attempt, a feeble attempt, to cover the stench of death that would soon emanate from that body. With death then also came the mourners. John records that Bethany was about two miles away. It's uh, measured in stadia. If you really want a precise number, some of you guys are like that. It was about 1.72 miles. Is that precise enough for you? you know, it's, it's, so, yeah, about two miles. It's really you know, not a bad translation. If it was in stadia, what would that mean to us? We'd want to get our calculators out, right? I did. Um, so 1.72 miles. So it was nearby. And because of that, uh, people have come out. People have come out in a, quite a throng. But it tells us something. We learned something about this family. That they're, they're uh, known not only in Bethany, they're known in the circles of Jerusalem. Uh, the word is God into Jerusalem. There would have been those that knew of this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Um, because of Mary's fragrant gift of oil that's mentioned back in verse 2, and the fuller account in Mark's gospel and Matthew as well, indicates that this, this is family of some means and involved in some sort of commerce. They would have had business connections, and so business associates and uh, their connections, perhaps those they've done business with. There's, there's a coming together to grieve with those who grieve. We see that in our day. Uh, you may have come from a large community. You may have come from a small town. Uh, but when someone dies, there's a gathering of people coming together and grieving with family, coming to comfort. You know, they bring the casseroles and lay out the tables. And, you know, there's the staying around, visiting time to time, weeping together. This is what's happening. John indicates that those who are mourning are the women, that's not to ex uh, say that that's the exclusive realm of women, but he does mention the women who are mourning. But before we go on, let's also think about the proximity, a little less than two miles away. 
That brings Jesus very close to where he had been threatened not so long ago. Thus the concern we saw of the disciples. Lord, you know, if we go, then, you know, they want to kill you in Judea. Jesus has come near. But also, again, remembering this story is about Jesus. The Father is writing it. Though he comes near, he will not be seized and taken until the right time. Now, not all, indeed, all, not all, indeed many would have been who were present, would have shared with uh, Martha and uh, Mary's affection for Jesus. There would have been those that uh, had seen Jesus, had you know, been uh, mindful of the reality of uh, his expressions of teaching and the miracles they had done. There would have been those who uh, had a, an affection even for Jesus like Mary and Martha, but there would also have been those that were not followers. Just because there are those, this crowd that is gathered, that joined around them, comforting them, that doesn't mean all of them were also Christ followers or Christ's disciples. Some of these, later on in the text, we're going to see that they will say, could not this man, we know him to be the God-man, but they say, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept Lazarus from dying? So they have an awareness of Jesus' power, his ability to work miracles. And they may raise this question. It's, it's a mixed multitude that is there, as always is the case. But Jesus is widely known, and even unbelievers wondered at all that he could do and had done. So here's the scene. It's a familiar scene to all people everywhere in every society down through the course of history. Death has come and taken away a loved member of a family. Family of friends have come together. No doubt back then, as we do now, food was brought. Probably not casseroles, Whew, right? We can get overwhelmed with this. But whatever the food of this day would have been bought in and had been shared and, and people would have lingered and they would need to be fed. Their memories of the beloved would have been exchanged. There would have been weeping. Overall, the tone is sorrow. Deep sorrow. A certain soberness of the reality that we too, uh, there would have been those there that day that they too, there was nothing they could do to prevent that day, to stop that day. Even as we heard of Hezekiah, the day was approaching, God announced it to him. And even though God heard his prayer, gave him 15 more years, Hezekiah still died. It's a reality. Last week we were talking about Solomon in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes. He says, it is better to dwell in the house of mourning than in a house of festivities. That's a pretty radical sound, particularly young people. It's like, what? It's better to go to a funeral? It's better to gather with a bunch of people weeping and crying and lamenting? Yes, Solomon goes on, because this is man's all. Adam sinned. We all sinned in him. Death came. We all die. It is better that we should be there, that we should take it to heart, that we should consider the realities, and that we should ask the question of our own souls with sobriety, am I prepared to die? And we mentioned that last week. Only when we're prepared to die are we ready to live, and indeed only then are we living. Those that were present that day knew as we know now, though it may not have been what you came here to think about today, but nonetheless, let's think about it. You know, death will strike again in your circles. Who? Don't know. When? Where? It's unknown, but to God. 
This is the reality ever since the Garden of Eden. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then so shortly after that comes Genesis 10 with the table of nations. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and he died. And so-and-so begat so-and-so, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Verse after verse. This is the reality. We dare not let social media and the clamor of music and the constant hub and busyness that is around us and within us, we dare not let it hide this reality, numb us against it. Death comes and death has a sting. It's final. It's settled. It's the end of life on earth and the beginning of life in all eternity. Well, in this context, we find Martha's faith. John tells us in verse 20 that Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, remember there's a crowd, there's people on the path, people milling about, people coming and going. Jesus is making his way in with his disciples. They wouldn't have walked right in. There would have been people stopping them, greetings would be given, conversations have been taking place. In that culture, blessings would have been given from one to another as they encountered their fellow countrymen. And in the course of that unfolding, word makes its way through the crowd, and Martha hears, Jesus is coming. She knew he would come. That's why she sent for him. She doesn't know why he delayed, but he has. So now he's coming. And so she went to find him, and finding him, she speaks to him. John tucks in an explanation about where Mary is at this point. He wants the reader to understand that the sisters were not together. Martha comes, probably the older of the two, and then later, Mary will come. Each of them will have their own one-on-one encounter with Jesus. It's pretty particular, pretty special. Jesus will engage with both of them one-on-one. Jesus will meet with them in their grief. And we will see that Jesus will even grieve with them. So Martha speaks to Jesus, verse 21. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. What are we to learn here? Well, Martha's address to Jesus is declared with respect. She calls him master or Lord. Um, In the Aramaic, it might have sounded like what we've encountered, rabbi. But we must not interpret her words as a rebuke. Her words are spoken from a heart of sorrow, but also of faith. See how confident she is? She says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Is that not why Martha and Mary sent for Jesus? That was their expectation. That was their confidence. And also, it reminds us of the reality. He was very ill. It wasn't like he had the sniffles. He was sick with some affliction. The expectation was it would bring about death. But it's not a question that Martha brings either. She speaks with a boldness of faith. There's a certainty. She is sure that what she says is true, that if Jesus had been here, her brother would not have died. Martha adds to this, But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. Now, we must be careful not to unpack her words in light of where we know the story is going. She doesn't know where the story is going. She doesn't know that there's an imminent resurrection. It's not even clear that she understands that Jesus could raise the dead. But she does know with a certainty that there will be a resurrection, She expresses a hope in the resurrection on the last day. She understands Jesus has the power to to heal. Her faith goes so far as her words declare that she believes that Jesus 
she does believe that Jesus can raise the dead. That's what some would say. But verse 39, look over that. It stands against that. Because when Jesus commands the tomb to be opened up, Martha says, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. So it's not an expectation of what's to follow. He's dead. There's a finality to it. This is the sting of death, the finality of it. And so we need to be careful not to think. She's saying, well, Jesus has come to raise my brother. And even as the conversation goes on, she has a hope in the ultimate resurrection of her brother. Martha is saying, what she's saying is, even though Jesus did not come, as she thought he would, he did not heal her brother, even though he is dead, even though he is buried, Martha is still full of confidence with Jesus. She has full confidence in him. Is that not your expressing, believers? You know, you've experienced uh, losses, griefs, sorrows, unexpected outcomes, things you prayed for and prayed for, and they did not go that way as God was writing the story that he would write, and yet, has God changed? Has your confidence in Christ failed? For Martha did not. She still believed that the Father and Jesus have a unique and intimate relationship, that the Father will give him whatever he asks. She still believes that this closeness of the Father and the Son ensures that Jesus' prayers are always answered by the Father. Her faith, if anything, has been strengthened. It has not collapsed under the circumstances. My dear brothers and sisters, let us have this same faith in our God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever the Son asks of the Father, he will give. Jesus ever lives at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for us. If indeed our prayers are not answered in the way that we, do, that we petition, it does not mean that God is not able. It doesn't necessarily even indicate that there's something wrong with our faith, as some branches of the so-called church would say. We have a chapter 1 and 2 to our lives. There are things that are unfolding, even as in Job's life, that we don't understand. That's stunning. Job never got the answer to all those questions he raised. We understand what was happening because it was inspired and written down before it began to unfold. But basically, God comes to Job and he says, I'm God and you're not. Period. That's sober, isn't it? But my friends, it's also comforting. Our God is great and able to do all his holy will. And he does all his holy will, even though our time is we do not understand it. We feel that most acutely, most truly in the times of death, because death has a sting. But let it not cause our faith to waver. Our Father knows best, as we said last week. Job cried out in anguish. We too will cry out. And yet God does not answer the why, although we can understand the why is always for God's glory. And we are to live for God's glory and therefore the full enjoyment of him forever. Like Job and Martha, we must learn to nestle and rest in the certain knowledge that whatever our God ordains is right. We have such a desire to be God. That was the temptation of Satan. That was the lie that he sold. You can be God. My friends, we cannot. God alone is God, and we need to rest in him. Martha's faith and patience in faith will be rewarded in due time. Verse 23, Jesus speaks to her. Your brother will rise again. Now, is he saying, I've come to raise 
him? Is that his declaration at this point? Well, perhaps it could be what we call a double entendre, having two meanings. But certainly what he is saying is in the resurrection, and Martha understands it that way, he will rise again. Jesus' answer is so full of truth, it's also got a purposeful ambiguity in it. He doesn't say, hang on, give me a little bit longer. Let me talk to a couple of few minutes. We're going to go down to the tomb. We're going to tomb, roll the stone away, and then I'm going to call him forth, and he's going to walk out. Jesus doesn't say that. But what he says is true. Your brother will rise again. And that resonates with Martha. Now, what Jesus declares is orthodox biblical truth. Death will not triumph. My friends, when we think of the sting of death, death will not triumph. Jesus Christ will have the final word, not death. This is the blessed hope of every Christian. It's what we preached last week. We don't grieve as the world does. Martha understood this meaning. Her faith is secure. A few, uh, let me say, every Jew, almost every Jew, believe that. All except for the Sadducees, not believing in a resurrection. A little biblical, biblical humor wordplay. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. You see, that's, that's they were sad, you see. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. I mean, how sad is that? I mean, it's humorous and it's not. To not have that hope. How could you be happy? You'd be very sad. And indeed, we're surrounded by people today that go through life, they make their way along, and they have no expectation of anything afterworld and in the afterlife, and yet it is written on their heart. Again, Solomon and Ecclesiastes. We know there's an eternity. We're made in God's image. It's imprinted upon us. Every human drawing breath knows there's something more. But they deny it. They cover it up. And indeed, how sad they are. Jesus' words affirm all this. But Martha's faith in Jesus and what he can do will soon be carried to new heights beyond what she could even ask or think. Right? Beyond what she could ask. She never imagined that Jesus would come and call her brother forth. There's a comfort in his arrival, an expectation that he will grieve with them and bring comfort to them that he alone can breathe. Never has it entered her mind that she will soon embrace her brother once more. Jesus is promising to do something more when he says your brother will rise again. He knows the work that the Father has sent him to do. Remember the sermon, Father knows best. He delayed, he purposely waited so Lazarus would be dead and not just dead. He could have gone the next day. Lazarus was already dead. But he waited two days so Lazarus was four days dead when he got there. Corruption would have set in. It would have been a glorious miracle indeed as it was. Jesus had come to glorify the Father. And the father was going to glorify his son. Lazarus would soon be restored to his sisters in that little community of Bethany. Well, then we come to Jesus' revelation. Martha having said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Then Jesus makes this glorious pronouncement that changes everything. Alters everything. Changes how we live. How we approach death ourselves. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall never live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's the great question. Both Martha and Mary 
greet their Lord in the same way. They said, if only you had been here. You see that said, we saw it in verse 21. It's also in verse 32 for, for, for Mary. If only you had been here. They could not believe that their Lord had the power not only to heal the sick, but to raise the dead. They, they, that was beyond their understanding. Nothing like this had been done. It was as if, as if for them death had had the last word. You consider their mourning. There's lamenting. If indeed they had an expectation, well, well Jesus is going to get here. He's going to raise Lazarus. Okay, everybody just calm down. Let's just be patient. Let's just hold on. No, they're weeping. The sting of death is real. They don't comprehend what Jesus is going to come and do. What else couldn't be said? Death is one. It's the hopelessness and despair that is all around that Jesus speaks into. And he does into our lives. I am the resurrection and the life. This is another one of his great I am's. This is the fifth great I am statement that we've come into in John's gospel. There are two more. Yes, there's seven. A completion, a perfection of all. And this is a most remarkable statement. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The resurrection and life, that is Jesus. They're inseparable. Both resurrection and life are rooted in him. The order is important. We're dead in sin. And resurrection in Jesus Christ then opens the door to eternal life. You can't have eternal life before the resurrection. John does not say the resurrection and life are something Jesus has to give. It's not his little basket or bag that he carried along dispensing healing for paralysis and blindness. No. It's much more than miracles that he does and accomplishes with the power of his word and the Holy Spirit. No, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. It is most remarkable. There is no other like him. He is. They are found in his person. He is the cause of life. He is the source of life. In the beginning, God spoke, and the word went forth, and out of nothing created whole worlds, and out of death he brought forth life. Jesus is the life that has come. Because Jesus lives, we too will live. But let me put it to you in another way. Take away Jesus. You know what's left? Death. Without Jesus, there's only death. Those who are still dead in their trespasses, still dead in unrighteousness, who reject Jesus, there is no possibility of life. Life is found in him. Life is him. He not only gives life, he also assures us of life. Why? Why can Jesus do that? Why is he able to do that? Because he's conquered death. He has defeated death. He has been victorious over it. He defeated sin, death, and the grave. The dark finality for those who believe is forever removed. He is the resurrection and the life. Therefore, as we heard last week, to die in Jesus is, we call it, you're just falling asleep in Jesus. It's not final. It's not the end. Oh, how glorious is this truth. Jesus is all this. On that great and terrible last day. You see, Martha, he's, she's thinking, you know, I know that you'll raise him again at the last day. You know, her hope for herself and in Lazarus is in that day of judgment when, when Christ comes, the last day, when all men are assembled before the, the throne of judgment and judgment is dispensed, that there is life, there's resurrection and life in Christ. She believes that. But my friends, 
It's more than that. It's not just that in Christ, when justice is dispensed to the sons and daughters of Adam, that those who are found in Jesus, who have experienced, as we already recounted, the first resurrection, will be acquitted. There will be no second death. To those that are partakers of the first resurrection, receive life in Christ, there will be no announcement, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, and they'll be cast out into the lake of fire. None of that is there. And Martha has that understanding. That is her hope. That is the hope of all who are in Christ. No hell, no wrath, no darkness forever and ever. But Jesus is the resurrection and the life now. Now, my friends. He's the resurrection and the life for his people now. Not only then, not only in that great day, but for today for all those who believe in him. This is what Martha is not seeing. Look at what Jesus says. He doesn't say, I am, I'm going to. I mean, he doesn't say, I'm going to be, I will be. He says, I am the resurrection and the life right now. This is the reality in me. And Jesus in this process is fanning her faith, so to speak, to new heights, something more immediate that would blaze, and soon she will be rewarded. She'll see something greater than what she'd ever expected. Did Martha dare to hope that Lazarus would shortly walk out of the tomb? We don't know what transpired in her mind as Jesus was declaring these words, what work the Spirit was doing in her. Was there a, a glimmer of hope? Did she think, is he sane? He's saying, I am right now the resurrection? We don't know. But what the reality is, is the Lord and giver of life was announcing a glorious truth for all saints. Jesus' declaration, I am the resurrection and the life. We must believe that. Because if we don't believe that, how can we have any hope for sinners around us, family members, friends, those that we love, that we pray for, that Christ would bring them? We do that because what? He is the resurrection and the life right now. I am, he says. And therefore, we are emboldened to pray for those that we love. For Jesus says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The second death, that is, the final death. Jesus, therefore, in verse 26, reinforces what he said in verse 25. He's not repeating himself. First, he says, my dear fellow believers. First of all, let me say, my dear fellow believers, Jesus is declaring to us that even though we die physically, like Lazarus did, yet we shall live. That is, possessing eternal life in heaven. Our body laid aside, as we talked about last week, laid aside in that last uh, wait in that last day, the great resurrection. In the meantime, we live on in glory in the presence of the Father. We don't die. There's the physical death, the separation of the spirit from the body, but we live on. We are immediately in the presence of God. We live on. There's no death for the soul. There's no second death because we are partaken of the first resurrection, life that Jesus gives to those who believe. Secondly, Jesus says to those who believe on earth before death, he's saying this to us. Let me take, I'm going to take what is the, the essence of what's in here and, and it's with emphasis. Uh, this is uh, being a, a very, not over literal, overly literalistic, but very literalistic uh, with the emphasis that's in the original. He says, everyone who lives spiritually and believes abidingly in me shall 
Never, never, that emphasis is in the text, shall never, never taste everlasting death. Shall never, never be separated soul and body from the presence of the love of God. We'll see in John 17, Jesus says, this is eternal life, to know the Father. Do you hear that echoed in what he's saying right here? Listen to it again. Everyone who lives spiritually and believes abidingly in me, that's having faith, shall never, never taste everlasting death shall never, never be separated soul and body from the presence of the God of love. It's astounding. It's astounding what Jesus has declared. Our physical death, when the Spirit leaves the body, cannot extinguish the real life that we have in Christ. We're already raised up. We have resurrection life. Rather, what the Word of God is teaching here is that the great, it is the great gain for the believer. Again, Paul's words, absent from the body, presence with the Lord, our physical death cannot extinguish your life. He or she who enters, he or she who is in Christ, a saint, then enters into the presence of the Lord forevermore. Verse 25, believing is followed by the living. Life in Christ begins in him. When we begin to experience that part of, of life in heaven, we begin it now. When we are new creatures of Christ, when we're born again, born from above, John's, um, Jesus' discussion, instruction of Nicodemus, once that begins, we're already beginning to live the life everlasting. We're already in relationship with the Father. This is life. We're already having something of a foretaste of that life in heaven here on earth below. We have communion and fellowship with the God of heaven. And part of that is we have a measure of obedience now. But then we will have full obedience. Hallelujah, right? Uh, living now by faith, then we shall live by sight. Living now that is followed by living forever, yes, forever and ever. So Jesus' words in verse 25 and 26 provide a powerful parallelism. The second confirms the first. There's a climax here. I am the resurrection of the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That's the question that Martha was pressed with, that we should be pressed with. My dear sisters and brothers in Christ, we are assured that we are assured by no other than Jesus himself that even though we still live here, we shall never, no, never die. What happens when the spirit leaves the body is not death in the final sense of what death is. Because the sting of death is removed because Christ is the resurrection. It's breathtaking. It's glorious. When we, when we meditate as we should on these things, it should turn our hearts into worship of the living God who has done this for us in his son. Make some application before we take up our last part. Those who do not believe, those who are without faith, they reject all this. They say that death ends it all. It's over. There's no more. And therefore, they can't accept Jesus' promise because he says, whoever believes in me, you don't believe in Jesus, there's no hope for you. There's no possibility. There's no escaping death. There's no escaping the sin, the sting of death. Indeed, the unbeliever, what does he think of? The grim reaper, robed in black, with his sickle, coming to harvest. And, and that's it, it's over. It's just, it's just over, and there is no more. And in that, the unbeliever sees no real power in death. You ever think about that? 
To them, it denies no power in death. It denies the reality of the judgment, even though God has announced it. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. But there's more that follows. It is with the Almighty and Holy God that we must reckon in that great and terrible day. And for those who have rejected Christ, what a terrifying reckoning that will be. By faith we believe these things. And these truths are accepted. Therefore, Jesus demands that Martha believe and accept these truths. Do you believe this? Well, we hear Martha's confession in verse 27. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Remember why John wrote this? We began with this months ago. John twenty thirty one. He says, these things I write to you, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What does Martha just confess? She believes that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Martha has life in his name. She is not an unbeliever. And she's declaring, I believe, Lord. Martha's answer is firm. She's full of confidence that he, who is the Christ, would only speak trustworthy and faithful words to her. D.A. Carson says of Martha, quote, her faith is a rich mixture of a personal trust and a confidence that certain things about Jesus are true. Namely, he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. That he is the one who has come into the world. Close quote. Others have heard Jesus' claims and rejected him. We've seen it in the text. They even call him a blasphemer. Martha has been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Remember, John baptized Jesus. He's anointed for the office of minister of a Messiah, and he goes forth. And what did John prophesy over him? What is the truth that God gave John to declare about him? I baptize with water, John says, but he baptizes with spirit and the fire. And we have seen it with the woman at Sychar, the man who sent, uh, came from Capernaum to Jesus in Cana. We've seen it with a man healed of paralysis. We've seen it with a blind man. Jesus baptized with the spirit because without that, there is no life. And Martha has been baptized with the Holy Spirit. She's been given a a new heart of faith. She's been regenerated. She's been given eyes to see and ears to hear hear the gospel. She's been given faith to believe, and the confession of it is upon her lips. For with faith we believe in the heart, and confession is made with the mouth that the Lord Jesus Christ saves. Some of you have seen the cold hand of death steal away those you love. Most of us. I was nine years old when my granny died. Loved her so dearly. I was devastated. It was around the same time that I was converted. I can't remember if it was before or after, but it was around the same time. And the cold hand of death stole my granny away. Death is powerful. We can identify with Martha. It's very much in a sense that you know, we have our day in Bethany. When the tomb holds someone we love. But the question is, do you know Martha's hope in Jesus Christ? He's the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? If you do, then you have life in his name. And therefore, you shall never, no, never taste everlasting death. You shall never, no, never be separated from God. Christ has brought you into union with the Father. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Hallelujah. What a resurrection. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we do marvel at these truths.
Lord, we understand only in part death, the passing across, entering into your presence to behold you as you are. Father, these are things that are spoken of in Scripture. We believe them. Uh, we, we see them only in part. And, Lord, we see them somewhat murkily. No doubt we see them imperfectly, incompletely. But nonetheless, you've given us the eye of faith. Lord, we have not seen Jesus like Martha did with the eye of flesh. But like Martha, we have seen him with the eye of faith. And therefore we live. Lord, we bless you and praise you that it is of you that you have done it. You've brought it about by giving us the Holy Spirit to give us a, a new heart, a renewed will, and faith to believe that you should receive all the glory. And Lord, we would pray that you would help us as we live our lives to remember that the story is much bigger than us. And you're accomplishing all your will in the world today as you have from the beginning, even so unto the end. Blessed be the Lord our God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.